These are the waters that shortly after the sermon we'll be baptizing at Elizabeth Balog Inn. And I wanted to show them to you because I want us to remember as we talk today um, that death and life are connected in ways that are deep and um, joyful and sweet, not just scary and sad. And that's a little bit what we're talking about today, that um, these baptismal waters will find us wherever we are, and these baptismal waters of life are ours. And today's going to be a real celebration of life. But first, we're going to talk about dying. (laughs) So if you would please pray with me. God of grace and mercy, God of power and might, come to us today and make the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts acceptable unto you. And if they should not be, if we should err or fall short, Help us to find you again and to turn around and to love you and all that we are and all that you have made us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to show you a picture. This is of Aoyama Cemetery in Tokyo, filled with cherry blossoms. I lived in Tokyo until I was about 10, and we spent a lot of time here. Once a year, there was a big festival Um, where the tradition was for people to go and picnic in the cemeteries. And we would go and we would picnic and it would be filled with people and food and games. And we would sit near the gravestones and offer fruit and flowers and we would run around them and sing. And we would jump up and down and climb the trees. Um, And festival day was great. But even not on that day, we would go and picnic there all the time. Or we would go and hang out, we would go walk around. Um, Because that's what everybody did. (laughs) In Tokyo, the cemeteries were a place to go and be with your ancestors, people who had loved you, people who you cared about, even if they lived thousands of years ago and you weren't directly related. The cemeteries weren't a place to be empty. They were a place to be full, (laughs) a place to be full of life and a place to join in. So I loved the cemeteries. They were one of my favorite places to go. I got the opportunity to go back to Tokyo a couple years ago, and it was one of the first places I went. I wanted to walk in the cemetery and see the people and feel the sun on my skin and feel that sense of communion and of joy that I had always felt there. And then, after living in Tokyo for about a decade, my family moved back to the United States. And there are a lot of things that I love about the U.S. I'm glad I moved to America. Um, But one of my first memories of living in the United States is uh, I'm in a car with some of my friends and we're driving around the small town I live in and we are on the road and all of a sudden we start to pass by a cemetery. And as soon as we start to pass by, the kid in the seat next to me turns to me and goes, hold your breath. If you breathe when you're passing a cemetery, the demons will get you. And so we held our breath and then we let it go. And um, I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but that made me really sad. (laughs) It was like this place that had been one of my favorite places, this place of joy and happiness, was all of a sudden a place that was scary and spooky, right? A place that was out to get me instead of a place that was here to support me. And I think that that idea, that attitude, is not so uncommon in the United States. Um, We have a lot of things going for us, but one of the things that people call America, who have studied this, and I've been reading a lot about this in the last couple of months, is a death-denying culture. We are a culture that doesn't make it easy to talk about death and dying, and where people get real nervous and scared when you do, right? They start to get a little squicky. They start to think, um, does talking about death invite death, right, is one thing that people kind of say, or just is talking about death awkward and impolite? 
you know? Um, if, I, if someone I love, my great uncle, somebody has died in the office when I say why I'm leaving, am I supposed to go, I'm going to a funeral? Or can I say it out loud, right? Um, can I be honest about what's happening or do I have to be a little quiet? Because death is kind of creepy. We live in this death-denying society where we don't talk about the process of death um, and we don't have intimacy with the dead like I had when I was in a cemetery. Most cultures most places throughout time, including the United States, we have some form of intimacy with the dead. I want to show you a couple more pictures. Um, here's an ofrenda. That's one way of being intimate with the dead, right? Uh, in lots of cultures, particularly in Central America and the Philippines, you'll have sort of a shrine in your home where you have pictures of people who've died or pictures of kind of skeletons to remind you of people who've died. You put fruit, you put flowers. It's right there. It's right there in your house. You remember. Another picture. Um, Christianity has often been like this. We just aren't in this particular moment, in this particular place. This is a reliquary in a church. Many churches throughout Europe have reliquaries, right, where the bones or the hair of the saints or people who've passed on is there, not to be scary, but so that you can talk to them, <laughs> so that you can feel this intimacy. I can call upon this saint. I can call upon this person. This is a person on whom I can rely. This is a person with whom I am still in relationship. And we can go back to the, to the pretty cherry blossoms. Um, most cultures and most places, even here in the United States in the Victorian era, one of the spiritual practices that you would be invited to was to walk around the cemetery or um, something that people would often be told to do was at nighttime when you were in your bed to pretend that you were in your grave and see how that changed how you lived. Um, but we live in a time where we don't talk about death. And so all this sermon series, we're going to be talking about the different reasons why. Next week, we're going to talk about the ways that death makes us sad. We're going to talk about grief, coping mechanisms with grief, how we grieve with one another. Next week is about the ways that death makes us sad. The week after that is going to be a little bit about the, the ways that death makes us mad, <laughs> anger, and how do we cope with that response to death. But this week, we're talking about how death makes us scared. Why does death make us scared? Why do we have this fear, and what are we going to do about it? Because as much as we are on the surface a death-denying culture where we don't want to talk about it, um, under the surface you can see a lot of ways in which I think Americans are deeply desirous to talk more about the reality of death and dying and what they mean. Um, I, I read a study that said that by the time a kid is 16, if they watch an average amount of American television, they will have witnessed 18,000 deaths. That's how much death is happening on TV. <laughs> we just don't want to talk about it in real life. <laughs> Um, my personal theory is that all those movies out there about zombies and vampires, right, they're fun and they're cool and like powers are cool, but I also think that they're a way for a culture to desperately try and think about eternal life. What does eternity mean when we've lost a common religious culture of talking about eternity and eternal life? Um, we're not talking about death anymore, so let's talk about what would happen if <laughs> we were vampires. How would we live then? What would the ethics of that be? Something is scaring us, um, but part of us still knows that we have to talk about this more. This can't be the way that we go on. <laughs> we have to be more honest. Um, because on the other side of honesty is that kind of intimacy and joy that I talked about, where we reduce fear and anxiety around death, and we instead say, here's a part of the life experience. Here's a part of the life experience. And when we have a holistic, integrated sense of ourselves as a community and a people who experience life and death, it no longer scares us so much. But also we might figure out different ways to live. 
based on different ways of thinking about how we die. And that's what I really see in this Ezekiel scripture that has been offered to us today. And this Ezekiel scripture that is just one of the most beautiful and evocative pieces of the Bible, I think, um, of bones coming to life, of a valley of the shadow of death. Many of you have probably heard Psalm 23 read out to you, right? Um, a valley of the shadow of death, not only traversed with the strength of God, but transformed by the strength of God. That the places where we think there is only bareness or barrenness can become places of life and fruitfulness and productivity um, because of who God is and because of the promises God has made. And I think this passage has a lot to teach us about the fears we have and about how we might move through them into a more joyful um, way of thinking about the reality of who we are and how bodies work. And one of them is that this Ezekiel passage is so bodily. Right? It names each piece of the body by one. There are dry bones in a valley, but then God puts on the sinews, and then God puts on the muscles, and then God puts on the blood, and then God puts on the skin. God cares about us, each and every layer of our being, each and every bit of our body. But I think it's also teaching us about what a miracle each one of those things are. When we see sinews get put on a bone, we think of that as miraculous because that's not usually how it works. But part of what Ezekiel is saying is the sinews that are on your bones right now are a miracle. The ones you were born with are extraordinary. It is amazing that you are alive. That God put sinews on you in the first place. That God made your muscles work in the first place. That God made your blood flow and your skin smooth or taut or wrinkled or whatever it is. But keeping you all in, doing its job, is a miracle in the first place. It is a miracle to be created and alive. And so why, if God can do such an extraordinary miracle as make us, if God can do such an extraordinary miracle as muscles and blood, would we think that death is so scary that it can stop God from doing miracles or stop God from being loving or stop God from doing anything at all? Why do we allow that fear to possess us if we know God to be the kind of God God is, which is a God who makes life? And that is extraordinary enough to believe any number of amazing things after that. So that's one of the things that I love about this Ezekiel that helps me to reduce that fear a little bit, is this sense of God's love of my body and making of it. And not just the physical parts, but this um, animating force that we feel, this animating force that we feel of life itself. Um, it says at the end, you know, the muscles and the skin have been put on, but the valley isn't really filled with people yet, you know? It's not a community yet. Until God tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, prophesy. Tell me to put my breath into them. Tell me to breathe life onto this valley, and then it will be alive. And Ezekiel, as most of us should do if God ever gives you a direct command, this is like good advice, the way to go, uh, does it. Prophesies, and God makes the breath. God breathes breath into this valley, and all of a sudden it is filled with life again. And it's interesting, at the time of Ezekiel, um, there was as much of a diversity of opinions about what happened after you died then as there is now. Not everybody believed in a physical resurrection at the end of the world. Um, probably most of the people that Ezekiel was talking to, you can't know for sure, but probably most of them believed in something called Sheol, um, that there was sort of a place of shadows, 
that we would go to after we died. Not good, not bad, not punishment, not reward, just like a place that you kind of hung out <laughs> until the end of the world and then God would figure everything out. But there was a diversity of opinion just as there is a diversity of opinion now because humans are humans, right? So some people believe that nothing happens when you die and some people believe that everything happens when you die and some people believe that what happens after you die is something to be scared of and some people think that it's something to be excited about and some people think they can tell you exactly what it looks like and some people are me and we don't. <laughs> um, but one of the things we learn from the Ezekiel is this vision of God doing as much uh, as is possible means that, that anything is possible. And I am a person, you don't have to be with me in this, but I, I offer it to you. I am a person who does believe in the physical resurrection of the people at the end of the world. Um, because I believe that that is what the story of Jesus teaches me. Right? That if Jesus was resurrected not as a spirit but in a body... That is God's intention for human bodies, that God has a vision for us to live in the world in a different way, that our bodies weren't accidents, they're a part of the vision, they're a part of the creation, and so they will be a part of the new creation. God has a vision for how we might live together. And this is the other thing that scares people. People are scared about death and dying in the first place, and then they're scared about what comes after. They're scared about what comes after. And one of the visions that we have today, what happens after dying, is that there is um, a place filled with demons and eternal punishment over here, and there's a place filled with kind of like gold and pearls and angels over here, and um, the end of the world is going to come, and then some people are going to be taken away, and some people are going to remain, and then there's going to be a big fight, and there's going to be a lot of drama, and then we're going to be sorted, sheep and goats. And parts of that, are, parts of that vision find echoes in scripture, but a lot of that vision <laughs> comes from one guy in the 18th century named John Darby, from Dante, and from the Left Behind series. <laughs> it's, it is not the most scripturally rooted vision in the world. <laughs> and so I want to unpack it a little bit because I find in my pastoral care, this might not be you, but a lot of the reason why people are afraid to talk about death and God is that even if with the words of their mouth they don't believe in that vision, with their heart of hearts they do. They've been scared by it. They just like heard it for so many years in a row that it seems like the only possible way that God could work. And they're living in fear because that is a vision of fear. It's a vision not where we are motivated to Christian life because of how extraordinary God is and how much Jesus loves us, but of how much we're scared of what might happen if we don't say the magic words, right? Um, and, and hearing that fear for so long lives inside of people even if they don't say that that's what they believe. This is something I find in myself and others all the time. Uh, something about death that I want to just bring up is um, frequently people I find I, when I do funerals worry if their uh, relatives have chosen to be cremated because they have been taught that cremation might get in the way of Jesus resurrecting them at the end of the world. And so something I always say is, uh, you know, and often people will tell me, oh, I don't believe that. You know, that's superstition. I know that's not true. I say, okay, well, I'm glad. But just in case you do believe that, just in case you had heard that, I just want to let you know that I believe that if Jesus Christ can raise us from bones, Jesus Christ can raise us from ashes, and I am just not at all worried about this person that you love. I believe that they are in the care of God. And frequently, that person will burst into tears. Because even though they say they weren't worried about it, part of them inside still believed it. And I think that's how we are about some of this afterlife stuff. 
we may have sorted out and say that we believe in grace and say that we believe in God, but actually what we believe is that we are worthless, most people are worthless, and God is just waiting to punish us at the end of time. Because that's what we've picked up. <laughs> and so that's the other reason that we're scared to talk about death is because we think that that's what comes after. And I'm not going to claim to be able to tell you exactly what comes after. I think you should probably not trust anyone who claims to tell you exactly what comes after because the one thing that is entirely clear is that it's Jesus' job is that it's Jesus' job. This is the one thing it does say in the scriptures over and over and over again, is that whatever happens at the end of the world, whatever happens after all of us die, whatever happens after the world dies, it's in Jesus' hands, and Jesus gets to make all those decisions and choices. So I don't know exactly what happens. <laughs> I can't paint a picture for you. But what I can tell you is that I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus. I love Jesus. I trust Jesus. I think that Jesus made most of us and Jesus loves most of us. And it would be surprising to me if Jesus then um, was petty or casual with any of our lives. Was petty or casual with any of our lives. And I trust in miracles because I've seen stuff like the Valley of Bones happen. I've seen life come where I thought there could be no life. I've seen joy come where I thought there could be no joy. I've seen hope and recovery where I thought there could be no joy or hope or recovery. And so I'm not scared. <laughs> I'm not scared of dying and I'm not scared of what comes after because I think that God made this. God made life. And so if God made everything else, I'm not worried about it. I'm not scared of it. I'm uncertain about it. I'm uncertain about it, but I'm not afraid. And because I am no longer afraid, I can live differently. I can live differently. Because that's what happened to the people Ezekiel preached to. Ezekiel was preaching to a people who were in a hard situation. They were a people who had been taken over by the Babylonian Empire, and they had rebelled so much, they had fought so much against this empire to get their place back, to get their land back, that they had been dispersed and thrown apart all across the Babylonian Empire. They had been prevented from religioning their religion, they had been prevented from speaking their language, from hanging out together, and it appeared, by all rights, what should have happened was that their culture would disappear, because they were so separate and so forced into hard situation that they would have abandoned the life they had once led and submit to what the empire told them their life must be. But Ezekiel preaches to them, remember the God who made us? <laughs> remember the God who made our bodies? God is powerful enough to make them again. Remember the God who made our communities? God is powerful enough to make them again. Remember the God who made this earth? God is powerful enough to make it over. You cannot lose hope. God is our God. And the hope that it gave them was that even if they couldn't see how things could be different during their lifetime, their lifetime was not the only lifetime that matters. That even if they could not have hope that things would change by the time they died, they were a part of a larger community, part of a never-ending story that God has been telling for thousands of years, and they believed that justice and hope might be known in that never-ending story, even if they wouldn't see it during their time on earth. And so the way they thought about death and the way they thought about what came after changed the way they lived, and they didn't give up, and they didn't abandon. And we still know their culture, and we still know their people, because they continued to live in the midst of what looked like a dry valley and trust that God is real and God is eternal, and that eternity isn't just about waiting for punishment or praise, it's about the time scale on which our efforts might be known. 
that as the rabbi says, um, it is not up to you to complete the work, but neither is it for you to abandon it. This is the other thing we're scared of that I think has affected the way we live. The way that the rapture has been talked about in popular culture, even if you don't believe in it, is one of um, the earth is a place that we must escape from, right? Good people get taken away and disappear, right? And everybody else stays behind. And I have a lot of problems with that, but one of them is that it is not at all scriptural. (laughs) What Revelation tells us is that this earth will be made into a new heaven and a new earth. This place will be the place that God redeems. This place and these people are the ones that God cares for, and this is where the kingdom will be known. Not some other location, not some other place we escape to, this place. And so the way that a lot of people think about the afterlife has caused them to give up on this life. Because they think, well, I'm escaping somewhere else. I don't want to care about this place anymore. It's too hard. It's too strange. It's too terrible. But if we think what happens in the end is that God comes here and finishes the work that Jesus has announced and finishes the work that God has started, we can care a lot more about here and each other. We don't give up on the earth just because climate change sounds scary. We say God is a God who has made a way out of no way. God is a God who has put flesh on dry bones. God is a God who cares about this earth and wants to make it merciful and justice and righteous. And I will be returned to my community, and my community will be returned to me, and we want to care about this place and care about each other. There are a lot of things that scare us about this idea of dying individually and communally and as the earth. (laughs) And I can't answer all of them, but for me, the answer is always Jesus' love and God's extraordinary power. And if I believe in those things, I have nothing to fear, And I have everything to live for. Everything to live for. No matter what I imagine comes next or comes next after that, the God I believe in is a God who is worth living for and worth living for with might and power and joy and justice and trying, even if I'm not going to see it in my lifetime. So I do commit to the idea that things can be different, that things can be better, and that God will be with us in all of it. Because if God has made dry bones live, God can make hot worlds cool. God can make unjust worlds just with us through the people that God has already created. Amen? Amen. So we're going to continue to talk about this all month. Next month, we'll talk about, uh, next, next month, next week, we'll talk about grief and sorrow. After that, we'll talk about anger. Um, but all of it, I hope, will have an undercurrent of joy. Because that's what happens for me when I get honest about this stuff. And so I hope you have a conversation at dinner this week. How do you want to die? What do you think about? Open it up a little bit and see what happens. We're about to have our holy baptism, which I'm really excited about. We're going to say a bunch of things about that. But right before the baptism, we have our moment of offering. So some baskets are going to be coming up the side. Um, If you have financial resources you would like to share with the church, we would, of course, always take them, and we appreciate them. You can write a check. You can put in cash. You can text UVC to 77977. All of those things help us do our ministry. They help us do the work that we do. They transform lives. They transform creation, and we would appreciate it. But beyond that, there's something much, much more important than resources, which is you. You are the best thing God ever did and the best thing God ever made. And God is writing new scriptures through your lives. And so we want to get to know you better. And so we hope that you fill out that tear-off on your bulletin. 
Write your name and number, or your name and your email, or your name and a comment, whatever it is. Offer us a prayer. Uh, suggest a worship song. We want to get to know you, so tell us about what you're interested in and who you want to be. Or, if you think you might never show up again, I'll just take you out for free coffee, because getting to know you will help get me to get to know God. And so I think all our kids are back up from, from children's service, but greeters, if you could go collect them after. Um, after the baskets come down, we're going to get started in holy baptism. And just a few things about baptism. Maybe Edel will wake up. I really don't want to wake her up with the water. <laughs> Poor kid. Okay. Um, baptism is one of the two uh, things that we call a sacrament in the church. There are lots of things that are beautiful. There are lots of things that are holy. But this one is a sacrament um, because it is one of the holiest things we do. And it is also one of the things in which we follow Jesus. The two are communion and baptism. And in baptism, we do something that Jesus did, which is in the water find new life and be declared by God a beloved child who is entering into that eternal story that God is telling, that eternal story that God is telling. And um, because we have so many different backgrounds here at UVC, we all generally got baptized different ways at different times in different communities that baptize people at different ages. And so one thing I like to explain is why we do baptize babies here. We also baptize adults. We also baptize teenagers. We baptize the whole spectrum at any point along the way. If you would like to get baptized, if you would like to get baptized today, if you would like to get baptized tomorrow, if you would like to get baptized next Sunday, please let me know. We want you to be a part of the work that Jesus is doing in the world. Um, but one of the reasons that we baptize babies is this. Some people will say, um, but babies can't choose, right? Babies can't choose whether they want to be Christian. Why would we baptize them? And I hear that. For us, the choice part comes at confirmation. When a baby is a teenager, we bring them through and we ask them, what do you believe in? Who do you want to be? But we don't want to wait to baptize them because we don't think God waits to make anyone a part of God's family. So when my kids were born, um, I don't know who they're going to be. They're going to surprise me, right? <laughs> they're going to turn out to be all kinds of things I never anticipated and want all kinds of things I never anticipated. But when they were born, I gave them my last name. I gave them my last name because I was saying, these are mine. I am responsible for them. I love them, right? And they might change their name one day. That's okay. Kids change their names. But I, at the beginning, am saying, you are mine. I love you. I take care of you. And so we think that's what we're doing when we baptize a baby. We're saying God is taking ownership, right? Saying, I am this child's. This child is mine. With my beloved, I am well pleased. I put my name on you. I put my name on you. So I invite you forward, the whole family, and kiddos, any kids um, at, of all ages, not just little kids who want to come forward, we're going to have you bless the water. So if you all want to come down too. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have the joy this morning of celebrating the baptism of Etta Elizabeth Balog. We have invited Etta and her parents to come forward. I also want to invite the children forward so you can get a closer look at this water. Baptism is a sacrament of the church, and one of the earliest Christians said that a sacrament is any outward and visible sign of God's invisible grace. We can't see what God is doing in the baptism, but we can see this water. So we gather around it. Want to put your hands in it? Oh, thank you. Yeah, you want to hold it? Yeah, you can touch it. Yeah, if you want to. It's water. Water symbolizes a lot of things. Like a person about to go on a long hike who drinks plenty of water, it is the beginning of a journey of faith. It also is the cleansing that takes place when God forgives us of sin and changes our lives and sets us forth on repentance. There's a lot of mystery to this sacrament, but the deepest truth of baptism is a celebration of God's grace that has already welcomed each one of us into the family. 
Just as Andy and Katrina loved Etta before she was born, God, too, knew Etta and loved her before she was born, before she could even respond. We baptize Etta today in response to this love that will not let us go, that continues to shape us and form us, trusting that God will continue to seek out Etta all the days of her life. Etta can't choose this yet, so her mom and dad are here today to answer some questions from the ancient church. But I want to be clear, they're not answering these questions for her. She's going to have to learn her answers and whether she believes them. But Andy and Katrina are professing their own faith in Christ and promising to raise Etta in such a way that with love in this community, with an openness and curiosity and love of wonder, that they hope that one day she'll choose to profess faith in Christ too. So I ask you these questions from the early church. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? If so, say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Do you accept the freedom and the power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? If so, say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Do you confess Jesus as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace and promise to seek and serve him in each and every human being in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, all nations and races? If so, say, yes, we do. Will you nurture this child in Christ's holy church that by your teaching and example she may be guided to accept God's grace for herself, to profess her faith openly and to lead a Christian life? If so, say, we will. Now we're going to pray over the water. So we'll get this down. So kiddos can come help me pray. And I'm going to use this special cup to pour it. This is going to be Etta's cup. Her parents got it so that we can use it today to pour the water, and she can take it home, and they can talk about her baptism every time they see it as she grows. Okay. like to extend a hand to the water, we can all bless it together. Let us pray. Oh, no, you're all going to hurt a second. <laughs> that would be scary. I appreciate it, though. Let us pray. Eternal God, when nothing existed but chaos, you swept across the waters and brought forth light. In the fullness of time, you sent Jesus, who was nurtured in the waters of the womb. He was baptized with water and anointed by your Holy Spirit. Later on, Jesus said to his followers, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Jesus calls us to share in the baptism of his death and resurrection. It is this water that we pour out, and it is this water for which we give thanks. God, you are the love who will not let us go. Pour out your Holy Spirit on the gift of this water and those who receive it, to wash them, gift them, clothe them, love them, and set them free for the journey. Amen. What name is given this child? Can you just say your name? Excellent. Um, okay. So I'm going to hold her, actually, because I'm going to introduce myself. Okay. Etta Elizabeth Baylock, I baptize you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have special prayer. If you want to lay your hands on her.
May the Holy Spirit work within you that you may be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Etta, you are sealed by God's Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. It is my joy to present to all of you your newest member, Etta Elizabeth Balog. Part of the commitments today are of Etta's family, but part of the commitments are you. You are her church. We do baptisms and worship for a reason. You're going to have to be the people who commit when she is troubled and has questions, to hold her questions and talk to her about them. When she falls and wants to talk to somebody about her scraped knee or her bigger errors, that you will love her and treat her with grace. When she has a concert or a recital that you will ask her how it went, that when she um, graduates or goes to prom, that you will coo at the pictures, all of the ways that we will support her for the rest of her life, and especially all of the ways that we will support her faith by helping her to know God. If you will support her in her life of faith, say, we will. Okay. They are committed to you. And so we give thanks to God, and I introduce you to your newest member. You may clap a little bit, and then we will hand her back to her parents. <gasps> Yay! She's dealing with this quite well. So just in time, we hand you back. You have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We give thanks for you. We give thanks for your family. And we invite all of you, I do a little sprinkle, to remember your own baptism. You have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or if you have not, you may be. And no matter who you are, God has claimed you as God's child. For this we give thanks, now and into eternity. Amen. All right. Let us sing our final song together and clap once more for Etta and the Balog family. Oh, I'm actually going to invite you, if you want to, during the last song, um, throughout this month, this is going to be our altar cloth, this white cloth. We have markers so that you can write on it the name of anyone you have loved who has passed on, so that every single time we take communion, you're taking communion with all the people who have come before. So if you want to add a name, feel welcome to do that now or after worship. Let us sing our final song together, and then you will be sent forth into the world to act like a baptized person, full of life and joy. Here we go. There I am. Would you stand with the body of spirit? And anybody who wants to play an instrument can come down and do so right now. Your love will set us free. 
in the midst of the darkest night. Let your love be the shining light, breaking chains that were holding me. You sent your son down to set me free. Everything of this world will fade. I'm pressing on till I see your face. I will live that your will be done. I won't stop till your kingdom comes. Because you are, cause you are, you are, you are my freedom. We lift you higher, lift you higher. Your love, your love, your love, never ending. Oh, oh, oh. You're alive, you are alive in us. Nothing can take your place you are all we need nothing has set us free you are alive you are alive in us nothing can take your place you are all we need your love has set us free stretches back thousands of years and forward who knows how many. We have no need to fear of death because life is such an extraordinary gift and God is such an extraordinary creator. Let us go forth people who believe in love, who believe in mercy, who believe in the miracle of creation and find nothing to fear in this world or the next. And let us live with others as if that was our reality connected forever by our creation by God and for many of us in our baptism, which calls us into a new way of living, a new way of being, a new way of loving that Jesus showed us first, but that we can continue to live until the end of the world, whenever it may come. Go forth, people of peace and good courage. Amen. Because you are, you are, you are. My freedom, we lift you higher. You are, you are, you are. My freedom, we lift you higher. Oh, you are, you are, you are. My freedom, we lift you higher. Your love, your love, your love, never ending. Oh, oh, oh. You are alive, you are alive in us. Nothing can take your place. You are all we need. Your love has set us free. You are alive in us. Nothing can take your place. You are all we need. Your love has set us free. Oh! 